Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair. I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text of our society and has helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the... the Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched. In the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions, the section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will start uh, at the doctor's opinion in the fourth edition, and Tim will work through the text paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. When the time comes for questions, this can be done by raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. And we will try to close at around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. There we go. Uh, so that should be shared probably. Can you see can you see the screen well enough, Alistair? Great. Um, my name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you, Alistair, for inviting me to, to do this. I'm just close it So all I'm gonna do is uh, share some experience or observations as they occur to me. I have no plan at all. I have no scheme here. If it's useful, that's wonderful. If it's not useful, don't worry about it. I'm not here in any formal capacity. I don't represent AA. Uh, and I often change my mind. So I may say something which I myself disagree with tomorrow. Um, also, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too academic about things. There may be whole sections I just read through and say nothing about. Uh, so it's not going to be an academic analysis, I hope. And also, um, a lot of these early chapters of the big book include uh, some AA history. Now, I'm not an AA historian. There are AA historians, and it's best to, to look at their materials. Uh, that there's, um, there's obviously AA's official publications, which are very interesting. Um, but for various reasons, I won't go into what I'd recommend if people are interested in AA history. There's a history book, uh, a history of AA by Ernest Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z. And there's a much more recent book, uh, which is very good on the early years of AA, specifically on the writing of the big book. Uh, and it's by, and these are these are both by historians as opposed to by uh, AA members. Uh, and they've been both the Ernest Kurtz book and the more recent book, whose author I've forgotten on the writing of the big book, are uh, have received a lot of acclaim, uh, critical acclaim in terms of, of the quality of the historical scholarship. And frankly, I would rely on those more than on the official AA history books. So I'm not going to go into the history because I'm not an expert in that. 
Uh, I'm just going to read and see what happens. And then if I think, yes, if people have questions, just pop your hand up and then I'll come to people uh, as soon as I can. So the doctor's opinion. Uh, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor is Dr. Silkworth, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specialising in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter, to whom it may concern. I specialised in the treatment of alcoholism for uh, many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. And I, I'm going to stop on that point. Um, in AA, I've noticed, I've done this, been very quick to assume that anyone who's walked through the doors of AA is an alcoholic like me. And by hopeless, I mean just the thumbnail sketch of that. I'm hopeless when I'm drinking because I cannot but drink huge quantities. I just built like it. We'll come to the exact meaning of this physical craving in a bit. But I'm also hopeless in that uh, left to my own devices, I keep returning. And it's despite the interventions of all sorts of other authorities. But this is terribly interesting because what it's telling me is that there is more than one type of alcoholic. Um, I've known lots of people, I'll share a bit of personal experience. When I was, I don't know, four, five, six years sober, um, I'd done the steps. That was all very good. I'd, I'd got a, somewhere to live. I think I'd bought a place by then to live. I had a job and a so-called career and I was, I was unhappy. And I found some people who seemed very happy in AA. Uh, but looking back, I don't think they were the kind of uh, weird, secretive, compulsive, obsessive, alcoholic type that I am I think they seem to be just very nice people who got sober and sorted themselves out and couldn't understand why I was crazy at five years six years seven years sober having already done the steps and going to five meetings a week and sponsoring a couple of people um, I've needed to find people who are as crazy as me sober who found a way out um, uh, second point, when I first came to AA, lots of the people around me just went to meetings and chit-chatted and stayed sober. I did not. I went to meetings and chit-chatted and got drunk repeatedly uh, over a period of months. And sometimes people said, well, I, I, I don't think you're ready. And I don't think it was that. I think I was absolutely ready. What wasn't clear to me was how desperately I needed to implement the AA programme from day one in order merely to stay sober. They're nothing to do with sorting everything else out, just to stay sober. I had to do an awful lot. And 
there are other people like me too. I've sponsored a number of people over the years, many people over the years who've got this very bad. And unless they put absolutely every ounce of energy into the program, they slip too. So just like me. Um, whilst other people seem fine on just a couple of meetings a week. So I don't assume, to sum up that point, I don't assume when I'm talking to someone I don't know in any way that they're necessarily an alcoholic of my type. Maybe they need to go to the lengths I do. Maybe they need spiritual awakening. Maybe they don't. It's not for me to judge. It's for them to judge based on their own experience. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. This is where we are. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. Now, this is going to be a point that is made throughout the book, that the job of AA is not to give me my life back so I can run off with it. it I honestly think that the most useful thing I've done, I've sober since 24th of July, 1993, if you're interested in those sorts of things, I know some people are. Um, so over the last 28 years, the single most useful thing I've done is try to carry the message of AA to other people. And it is only by doing that, that, that I reinforce it myself sometimes i only believe it when i'm telling someone else then i think actually now, now i'm telling you i believe it myself um i know the aa culture i'm not going to name specific places but there are places um where they suggest you don't sponsor until you're a year sober um i went to a convention in colorado where people were from all over where their culture and the places they came from was the people under five years generally don't sponsor. The idea is you need to get lots and lots of years before you can start to sponsor. Uh, and then the, the old timers sponsor everyone. Um, and there were people five, six, seven, eight years sober with no sponsee, one sponsee, two sponsees. I don't think I would have made it that far. It was in my second year when I, I, I really started sponsoring. I did a lot of helping in the first year. I, I really started sponsoring the second year. And it saved my life. I think it saved me from going back to drinking on many occasions. And it's something I can start doing, even if I'm not formally sponsoring someone. I was able to start carrying the message, message straight away. And that was impressed on me from day one. As soon as you've learned something, share it with other people, teach it to other people by sharing in meetings and after meetings. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. Uh, don't forget, by the way, just stick your hand up if you have a question. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Now, this is going to keep coming up, so I might as well grab the nettle at this point i can see a couple of people know where i'm going with this one you know um okay so someone asked my friend tom are we recovering or are we recovered and he said yes in other words there's some truth to both uh yes i no longer have the symptoms of active alcoholism uh yes there's more work to do there we go 
and I think that uh, I, I try to avoid that the enough things which people fall out over without falling out, out over unnecessary academic squabbles. And the recovering recovered one is one, I think, in my experience. I, it's just I don't see any good coming from the, the argument. The second one is, um, is it a twofold illness or a threefold illness? That's another one of those things that people get very, very exercised about needlessly. So I think there's some truth to both sides. Um, so by recovered, what they meant when they wrote this was basically they'd stayed away from drink for a while and they were you know, getting on with their lives with greater or lesser success. Uh, I personally know scores of cases who of the type, again, this notion of different types. I personally know scores of cases who are of the type with whom other methods. So there are other methods, you know, psychiatry and psychotherapy and so on. Uh, I know uh, certainly around here in East London, the, uh, the mosques handle uh, addicts and alcoholics in-house. They've got their own programs. Um, so there are other types. Again, I'm very hesitant to tell people in AA, as some people do, that well, it has it's AA or nothing. There is nothing else. Well, for me, there was nothing else. I don't know. There's nothing else for other people. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth in inherent in this group they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. Be very careful who you give that paragraph to read in a meeting. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. And I think that's terribly important. Um, I remember at a meeting in Ifield Road with maybe a hundred people at it in around August, 1993, thinking uh, either AA works or these people are all lying. And I, I couldn't, as paranoid as I was, I really could not believe that they were all lying and had got together to mount this collective lie to tell me that they were sober when they weren't. Um, and it's the same with people who are at peace. I remember asking someone to be my sponsor when I was about seven years sober. I didn't follow through, uh, but I knew that he was at peace. I could just tell. In fact, he was so at peace, I found him frightening. <laughs> so I didn't, I, I went and found someone edgier instead. But nonetheless, it's, it's based on trust. Either you'd be is, is sometimes in AA people in meetings will tell you will tell you how, how this is the big phrase that gets used I've got a very big life today and they sort of list all of the things that they've done and I don't know I'm sure it's very good but I I trust people based on on their demeanor do they seem cheerful you don't have to tell me you're cheerful I kind of know and I think this is where the great confidence comes from in AA. My confidence in my sponsor has largely got to do with his demeanour. It's not any specific thing that he says. Don't tell him that. Don't tell him I said that. But it is. It's his, it's his manner. So anyway, very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. Uh, 
the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. So this is back to Bill. Essentially, you need to know that Bill is writing most of this beginning of the book. There was a couple of chapters which other people had a big hand in, but a lot of it is Bill. Uh, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In his state, in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered the suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It didn't satisfy us to be told that we couldn't control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we're in full flight from reality or outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Um, there's a lot of reference in AA to the physical craving. It's going to talk about it a lot in this chapter. It gets referred to elsewhere. If you listen, there are lots of big book studies you can get on XA speakers or YouTube, which would be far more informative than this talk, uh, where they talk a lot about physical craving. Now, before we get into that, this is the key, I think this is the key paragraph. This is the paragraph that explains it. Uh, but we need to look at the phrase physical craving first. Uh, you've got to be careful because in the language in general, when you ask people in the street, what does craving mean? they tend to use it to refer to the desire to have the first one. So I was craving chocolate, so I went to the supermarket and bought a Cadbury's Whirl. I don't, I don't buy chocolate, I don't know what they're called. But anyway, you get the idea. It's something that you have before you have the, 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 drink, the drink or the drug or whatever it is. Uh, in big book terminology, uh, they refer to the craving, they use the word craving to refer to what happens after the first drink. We'll come to what we call the desire to have the first drink, but what compels us to have the first drink uh, later on. So the craving is something that kicks in, triggered by a drink. So we have to ignore, as with several other words, mental obsession is the other phrase where it has a different meaning in the big book than it does in the language physical craving, uh, meditation has a radically different meaning in the big book than it does in the language in general. Uh, when it also says a physical craving, I've often heard people say that, well, I didn't feel it physically. It, it was in the form of an idea. I would like another drink, please. Um, and by physical craving, it doesn't, it absolutely doesn't mean that you feel it in your body somewhere. You may or may not. Some people, some people do feel it very viscerally, uh, but that's not the point. The point is that the craving originates in the body. So as opposed to where, as opposed to in the mind or in, in terms of in your consciousness or outside influences. It doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from consciousness. It comes from the wiring. And I'll tell you a story, actually, in a bit, once I've explained this, that I got from a German doctor, but more of that anon. Um, 
the key line is this one. It didn't satisfy us to be told that we couldn't control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we're in full flight from reality or we're outright mental defectives. Now, this line is problematical because it's got lots of long words and long words don't always help. So let's put it in language I understand. The reason I had the 14th gin and tonic was not because I was unhappy, mad or thick. There we go. Uh, so the question is, it's that this paragraph, this physical craving, this whole passage is not about why I have the first drink. It's why I drink so much when I drink. So we're looking, what's the reason I have the seventh drink, the 14th drink, the 21st drink? And when you go to meetings, I've often heard people say, I drank for the effect. And it sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And with the first or second or third drink, maybe that's the case. But frankly, I don't know about you, when I'd had three quarters of a bottle of gin, what effect did I think I was going to have from another finger of gin? There isn't any additional effect that's coming. I've already got the effect. In fact, often I would find myself pleasantly drunk, thinking if only I could keep it here and not tip over, I would go, as it were, through the looking glass at some point in the evening when it would get dark and dangerous. And I'd start to get restless. I'd rove around. If I was in a city, I'd end up in trouble. I would accost strangers in all sorts of disagreeable ways. I would get into uh, uh, near fights. I tended to run before things got very unpleasant. But I, I was very often in dangerous situations with dangerous people. I would know halfway through the evening, if I carry on drinking, that's where it's going to go. And I didn't want it to go there. I remember having maybe a, a couple of litres of uh, wine, uh, red wine, sitting on a hill in a campsite in the middle of the summer overlooking Florence. Uh, I, was at, I was pretty toasted on a couple of litres of red wine and I was having a lovely time. And I remember thinking, I want to keep it just here. But I kind of knew I was going to drink more and it got dark and strange and I started arguing with the person I was with. So the, this question, the question this is answering is why did I have the seventh drink, the 14th drink, the 21st? And what it's saying, it's not because I was unhappy, it's not because I was mad and it's not because I was thick. Uh, although I was uh, estranged from reality, should we say, at the end of my drink, and my cognitive processes were damaged, uh, I would experience this craving. In other words, how do you know you've got a craving? Because you're drinking buckets and it's not the first time. At the beginning of my drinking, I wasn't, certainly wasn't mad. My cognition wasn't impaired. And you know what? I would overshoot when I was happy as well as when I was sad. I would overshoot when things were going my way as well as when things weren't going. And so what this is about, 
this physical craving is very difficult to prove. You can't prove you've got it. What you can do is you eliminate all other possibilities and say, well, that's the only satisfactory reason left. So did I drink too much just before, when I was just when I was unhappy? No. Well, it can't be unhappiness. Was I aware that drinking too much was causing terrible problems? Absolutely. So I wasn't in full flight from reality and I wasn't an outright mental defective. I was clear what was happening and I found it regrettable that it was happening but I just accepted it and when I remove all of those excuses the only conclusion I can draw is I drink the way I drink because that's the way I drink so if you want another way of understanding the physical craving a very useful phrase is this constitutional so when people say they're constitutionally able or unable to do something. Their constitution doesn't allow them to eat prawns. Uh, I think that's what it means. I'm constitutionally built to drink vast quantities. And it's, no, it's very similar in my experience uh, to tobacco. I stopped, or nicotine rather, I, I stopped smoking when I was 21. And I started again when I was 28. And for the seven years or so that I smoked from 28 to 35, I'm in my 50s now. For those seven years, throughout those seven years, I was 100% clear that smoking was a horrible idea. It, I had the next cigarette and the next cigarette and the next cigarette, regardless of circumstances, regardless of emotion, regardless of knowledge, regardless of consciousness. I watched my father uh, die of lung cancer during this process and continued to smoke. Information does not cause me, does not uh, sever that link between me and the substance. When I'm off to the races, I'm off to the races and I'm off for years. That's what this is about. Now, sometimes people get very exercised about the biochemistry or the neurochemistry of this, and I think one needn't. There's a program on French radio uh, a couple of days ago. It's a four-part series on, on women and drinking included uh, interviews with alcoholics and former alcoholics and so on. And a couple of people were quoting a, 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 an American study from the, I think the 1970s with a particular chemical which is produced in alcoholics, which is not produced in other alcoholics. And I, I, I'm not really up on the science side of things, but what I will relate, I mentioned the German doctor. Well, I spoke with, along with some other people at a convention in Germany a few years ago in Frankfurt. And they got a German doctor along to give a doctor's opinion, a contemporary doctor's opinion on alcoholism. And they didn't just get any old doctor, didn't just get a GP. I mean, good for GPs, but you know, they're not specialists. The key word is general. He, he was the head, he was the clinical director, the chief physician of the largest alcohol and drug treatment hospital in that land in Germany. Germany is divided into these lender, these sort of regions, and, and it was the biggest hospital in the land in, in Frankfurt. And he gave an absolutely fascinating talk, which, uh, first of all, completely reinforced everything in this chapter. And secondly, provided an explanation for what is going on. 
So I'm going to share that explanation for you. It helped me, so maybe it'll help someone else as well. He said, there's a bit of your, bit of your brain, the midbrain, and this is me reporting it. I, I hope this is as accurate as I can get based on memory. I did write everything down at the time. But he said, basically, your midbrain gets very excited when certain chemicals are introduced because they produce these rushes of neurotransmitters. And your brain likes these. And they're the same neurotransmitters which are involved in sex and eating. So there's an evolutionary basis for liking sex and eating. If you like sex and you like eating, you will, you will probably not die of starvation. You will breed, so your, your genes are more likely to be passed on. So there's an evolutionary advantage. But this bit of the brain, if you give it too much, it gets overexcited and it just, it, it just keeps sending commands up to the front of the brain. Imagine the front of the brain like the conductor of the orchestra that gets to decide what's going to happen in the orchestra pit, what the orchestra is going to do next. The conductor is supposed to be in charge. The midbrain sends these signals up to the front brain. If you, if you have a drink, if you have uh, cocaine, if you have a number of other things, uh, where it says, I want more. And what the doctor said was, and they can test this with uh, in all sorts of ways, um, in alcoholics, in addicts, the system becomes dysfunctional so that the frontal lobes, which is supposed to be the decision makers, uh, the decision-making part of the brain is no longer making a decision. It's taking the instructions from the midbrain as a command that it must obey. So when the midbrain says, I want another one, the frontal lobes say, yes, sir. And no other considerations come into play. Um, and this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've heard it also described like the bouncers of a club, like the, the frontal lobes are like the bouncers of a club that get to decide who gets let in and who doesn't, except in an alcoholic. Uh, the bouncer's function is impaired so that they just let in certain people all the way through to the VIP lounge, except they're letting in the people with the Kalashnikovs. Um, what else did the doctor say? He said, when you do the brain scans of alcoholics and addicts, the brain activity in the midbrain and the front brain is different. The, the, the electrical activity is literally different. The frontal lobes the function is reduced. You can see by how much it, it, it lights up on, on the scan. He said another interesting thing. He said, although that circuit can be broken and it's difficult to break, but it can be broken through abstinence, the circuit remains permanently available for the rest of your life. So what he said it was like, was like a, a Formula One track where the cars just go round and round and round and round and round. Just like my drinking day after day went round and round and round and round on this track. What abstinence does is it puts some yellow tape across the, the entrance to the track. But if you drive through that yellow tape, the car's just gonna go around the track again. Um, 
so what he stressed was although the brain can recover the once the pattern has been established it remains permanently available so the description of the physical craving and the fact that it remains there which are, are two of the big messages of the big book were certainly corroborated by this doctor i don't know because i haven't checked the extent to which this reflects a scientific or medical consensus all i'm doing here is reporting what this doctor told me and what we just i actually wrote to him and we had some discussions after that as well so I, if that's useful to anyone that's great so this is the notion of the physical craving i infer that i'm built like it just from the way that i i drank which means i can never drink safely again the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. I think this is also very important because, in a sense, um, our analysis of what's going on after the first drink is neither here nor there. What we're left with, what I'm left with, is when I drank for those years in the late 80s, early 90s, the pattern was consistent and unbroken. And therefore, I infer that if I were to start drinking again, the same would happen. If this theory is untrue, we would need another theory which explains the phenomenon. The phenomenon is real. The theory is simply a way of understanding what is going on. Um, if one does doubt that this is true, one uh, unfortunately uh, can simply observe what happens to people who go drinking again after many years of AA. So a very small number are fine, but a very large number are not. And you can never tell in advance, in my experience, who, who is going to have trouble when they start drinking. Um, there is a long to that the, I, I didn't want to get too academic but this is there is a, a study which is very very interesting i'm just going to put the there's a study by a chap called i think it's valent it was a 60-year follow-up of alcoholics from the 1920s so every few years they would follow up what happened to them until they all died so the original investigators in this clinical research were obviously different than the investigators at the end because they themselves had died and replaced by later ones. The preliminary findings in some of the intervening years, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, concluded that of those who were flagged up as alcoholics in the 1920s, some died of alcoholism, some were permanently abstinent, mostly in AA, and some had returned to normal drinking. By the time they did the final follow-up, all of the ones who had returned to normal drinking had resolved either into full-blown alcoholics or had gone back and got sober again. And one of the conclusions was that the notion of an alcoholic returning to normal drinking uh, is an illusion. It, it looks as though it works for a while, but it always resolves one way or the other. So that's a very interesting study, not a huge cohort, but it's an interesting study allergy so people get very exercised about this i've heard people say well i don't think it's an allergy because i didn't come out in a rash when i drank 
I've heard people say, I know it was an allergy because I kept throwing up. Well, if you drink enough, you will throw up. That's, that's what the allergy they're talking about. Again, it's one of these words which, which means something different now than it did historically. Um, now its use is much more limited to the immune system response, uh, for instance, to a bee sting or to peanuts or whatever. Um, what, what is meant in this context is a reaction to alcohol, which is different than that displayed by other people. So if you, uh, and the best way to illustrate this is if you have a little party of people that go into a forest and they pick some mushrooms and they eat the mushrooms and they all die, you would conclude that these are poisonous mushrooms. If, however, different party, different mushrooms, they go and they eat some mushrooms, uh, one of them immediately goes into anaphylactic shock and the rest enjoy their tea very much and absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with the mushrooms. The problem lies in the individual. The individual who got, who developed an anaphylactic reaction had an allergy. So whether something is an abnormal uh, reaction, it is simply statistical. And so all that is meant here is that there is a, a reaction which is different in alcoholics than you get in ordinary healthy people. That's it. So nothing to do with the immune system, nothing to do with the contemporary sense of, of allergy. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Um, I'm going to, uh, oh, Alistair, do you want to ask your question before I go into this paragraph? Thanks, Tim. Uh, I'll say, oh uh, I wanted to ask you, with the physical factor uh, that we've been talking about so far, um, if you had any experience with um, other substances and this physical factor, um, for example, I don't know, chocolate, does it come about in chocolate or... Or, yeah, do you have any experience of uh, like other substances where this physical factor is, is um, part of it? Okay, so uh, I wasn't a big drug person. I, I remember someone who went to my home group would always say when they shared I was a, a big part of the Manchester rave scene. I was not a big part of the Manchester rave scene, I can tell you. I was a big part of the King's Cross Chinzano scene. Me in my flat in King's Cross with a bottle of Cinzano. Uh, I lived in King's Cross and I didn't know where to buy drugs. I and I didn't know you were allowed. I just I just drank. Um, however, um, uh, when I was in uh, New Hampshire a few years ago. One day we were at a gas station, as they call them. And at the gas stations in America, they sell lots of food or, 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 or substances which pass for food. They look like food. Whether or not their food is a different question. And I bought something called, oh, uh, I think it was a Boston whoopie pie. 
And it was this sort of these chocolate layers with this cream-like substance in between. And I had one. And I found myself craving sugar every day for the next 10 days. And I'm exactly the same now. If I have a large dose of sugar, it's in my system. My, my brain is messed up by it. I, I get all sorts of weird compulsions for days afterwards. I'm like this with nicotine um, uh, in the areas covered by uh, SLA and SA. I'm exactly the same. I've got to be very, very careful about certain behaviors. If the, there's a um, Suzanne Vega song, don't uncork what you can't contain. It's a very good line. Don't uncork what you can't contain. Um, Suzanne Vega is not yet conference approved literature. We're working on it, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, my, so my experience with all sorts of things, whatever produces a kick in me uh, seems to produce craving for a number of days afterwards. Um, What's frightening about this kick is it's not just chemicals, behaviors can do it too. Hence the reference to SLA and SA, where I, it's as though I'm my own chemistry set and I can produce chemical reactions in my brain just by doing certain things or even thinking about certain things. And there, there's one tiny bit of science which blurs a little bit of what goes on in the big book. Nora Volkov, V-O-L-K-O-V, I think is her name, Mexican academic who works in, the, in America, I think, in the area of drug and alcohol research. And I saw a very interesting documentary uh, many years ago now where they did some experiments with uh, cocaine addicts. And... They did brain scans of cocaine addicts. Well, I don't know. If, I don't think it was scans or they had sensors. But in any, any case, they could build up a picture of which parts of the brain were experiencing high levels of electrical activity. And they discovered that the um, in the cocaine addicts who took cocaine, a certain part of the brain would light up. And in the cocaine addicts who were shown videos of people taking cocaine, the same parts of the brain lit up. And to me, that's fascinating. It explains a lot. I've sponsored a number of people who were crystal meth addicts and alcoholics and sex addicts. Often those things go together as a kind of unholy trinity. And what a lot of people have reported to me is that they couldn't stop their crystal meth addiction until they stopped the porn because the porn would inevitably lead on to uh, a crystal meth relapse. Um, and I think, although this isn't clearly stated in the big book, it is in effect stated in that it talks about um, uh, not, although we don't run away from alcohol, we make sure we're on firm spiritual ground first. So we don't hang around bars. I think there was the understanding 
that uh, even when it's out of your system, you can be triggered if you're not careful until you're on, until you're much further progressed in your recovery. So that's my, that's my experience as well. Um, though we work out our solution, okay, I've read that bit, the, 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 the hospitalization. Um, there are a couple of important, there are several important points here. Uh, the first one is the nature of the solution is spiritual as well as altruistic. Um, there is a psychological element to the program. It, later on in the chapter, it's going to refer to moral psychology, which is a, not a super helpful term, I have to say. Um, but there is a psychological element. But um, uh, the question regularly comes up if you've got sponsees who are very, very psychologically disordered, do you have to deal with that first? Um, why is it spiritual and altruistic? My mind took years to sort itself out. But what I could do, and when people tried to sort me out on a psychological level in my first year, it just I just got more and more tied up in knots. It was the letting go, trusting God, taking action, helping others, which set me on the right track. And the psychological stuff for me came a lot later. Um, having the mind cleared first, and this is going to be a terribly controversial point, maybe. Jim Willis, in his workbooks, Jim got sober in 1950. I never remember if it was 59 or 57, one or two, maybe it was 59, late 50s. Still alive, still sober in San Antonio. Wonderful. Um, in his workbooks, he says, you have to have a clear mind for this process. If you don't have a clear mind for this process, not, it's not gonna go in. And friends of mine in fellowships which deal with process addictions, so SLA and SA remind me that when people have had a slip in SLA or SA and no chemical is involved, it's like they're drunk. And that's my experience as well in myself and in handling other people. Um, I had to, uh, to, to stay sober in my first year, I had to stay away from an awful lot more than alcohol. Um, the other thing which I think is fascinating, this will crop up again and again throughout the book. As he question. has been. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Hi, Corey, alcoholic. Hi, Corey. Um, what is slaw and essay when you refer to that? Oh, um, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, other members of those fellowships, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I'm so used to the acronyms, I never remember what they stand for. An essay, I think, is Sexaholics Anonymous. So the fellowships of people with problems in the area of sex and so-called love addiction and romance addiction, all, all of those things. Does that answer your question, Corey? Yes, thank you so much. Brilliant. As he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Um, anyone that knows me will know that I'm... Uh, when I'm not behaving myself, more of a bulldozer than I really ought to be. And that's not really the AA way. Um, this is very helpful here. My job 
when I'm trying to sponsor someone is to offer the program as I've experienced it, as I've understood it. And I can do, I can explain it, but I can't do the acceptance for the other person. I, I shouldn't, as soon as I feel as, I, as I'm trying to convince someone of something or persuade them to do something, I've gone outside the scope of what sponsorship is supposed to be. And I've made this mistake a thousand times. It's very difficult. I find it very, because aggressive A-type personality, you know what we're like. You've probably had bosses like that, or maybe parents or teachers or whatever. But this is very clear. We're not selling anything. And in the in early AA, there are, there are extraordinary stories, extraordinary because it's so different to what we do today, where you know, a couple of AA members would do a little tour of a hospital, the drunk ward. They'd sit down with someone. They'd explain. They'd start to explain the program. If the person resisted this, well, we won't trouble you anymore. If you do, you know, if you don't want it, that's fine. And they just go on to the next bed. It's on offer. If people want it, that's great. If they don't, that's fine too. They're not going to trouble anyone. And I, I, I think that's the ideal which I'm trying to work towards. The doctor writes the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction i say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction there was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when i was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is considered in such masterly detail in these pages we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, um, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Alistair, you had a question. A question from the floor. Uh, do you think that most people will need to have exhausted other methods before they will buy into the AA programme? Uh, uh, it's a fascinating question. I'll tell you what my experience is. Uh, uh, AA was the first thing I tried in terms of an agency to solve my drinking. Uh, it wasn't the first thing I tried to solve other things. I've been trying to solve everything else in my life. Um, well, I was first intervened on. I don't know if any of you had that experience. I was first intervened on at the age of 14. I was under very close surveillance for about four years at a boarding school because of my behaviour. Um, so I did exhaust lots of other things. I don't know about other people. I know lots of people where they, they try AA out of the blue. Uh, they try all sorts of other things. What I do know, what, I think this is partly an answer to the question. The AA programme is, is, is not for the faint-hearted. Because what it required me to do, and Bill's story is going to make this very clear, is for my life to be on an entirely different basis from what it was on up to that point. 
and an entirely different basis from what one sees largely in Western society with its materialism and hedonism and individualism. And that's in, immensely threatening. When you've got, so, when I got to AA, I had so little in, in the world and so little sense of self. The AA program was asking me to give up that last little thing that I did. Uh, now, of course, it gave the real me back to me uh, in payment for doing the program. But it's, gosh, that's a huge gamble. And it's a really big leap. And the big leap was this. It, was a, it started to happen around August, September um, uh, 1993, where the old timers got tired of sitting on the phone for me, with me for hour after hour, arguing the toss over every single point. I was very argumentative and very resistant. And they just started to adopt the attitude, well, either take it or leave it. We've explained it, we're done now. And what convinced me was, um, one final relapse in, in the July. Um, and then in the few weeks after that, realizing that no one else could talk me out of it. And I had to just surrender to it, which was basically take my thought system offline, put it on the shelf and rely on something else to govern the structure of my day, structure and content of my day which was the four P's of the, a little bit of contact with the higher power, but chiefly the AA program as it was set out, uh, uh, which wasn't very big book, but it was very solid. Uh, the program, the principles of the program and the people. Uh, it was only because nothing else worked that I did that. Nothing else within AA worked that I surrendered fully to the program. But I think there's a huge range of experiences on that. Some people get AA very young or whatever A very young. Other people, it really is the last house on the block. Bob D, I think, is very good on this. He says that AA is the last house on the block. And in the last house on the block, there's a sort of shady attic, um, which is the last room in the last house on the block. And that's where the big book meeting is being held. So I think uh, in certainly lots of parts of the world, the big, the big book group or the step group is the one that newcomers are warned off because they're all a bit, all a bit harsh there. Um, so, yeah, that I think that certainly it's true when I was new, you were warned off step meetings by certain people. Um, anyway, I'm digressing. One, maybe one last paragraph. I, so I think I've read that paragraph about the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. I'll give you an example. I think the best way to explain that is by example. People have been trying to argue me into common sense and seeing things differently for years before I got to AA. Now, I'm not going to give a lecture on A Course in Miracles, but in A Course in Miracles, that the, the notion of a miracle is an event which makes you make years of progress in a single moment through an interaction between two people. And that, that miracles are always interpersonal in nature. Now that sounds very abstract. But I'll give you a concrete example. When I was uh, I did 18 minutes sober, I got um, a commitment at the 
Thursday evening, Hampstead Manor House, M-A-N-N-A House AA meeting uh, to do the tea. And I made the tea for some people, probably indifferently, but I made it. And I had this extraordinary feeling I'd never had before, which is that I belonged somewhere. And people had been trying to instill in me a sense of belonging for years with absolutely without success. I take some action, which is spiritual in nature. I surrendered to a process which I didn't agree with. And it was altruistic, spiritual and altruistic. And it affected the change in me that professionals had worked very hard to affect, but hadn't been able to affect. And, that's, and there are thousands of examples of that. Um, with this notion of synthetic knowledge, um, the, the, I, I'm not going to um, go into that shame as partly because uh, it, uh, some of the doctor's language, like moral psychology, synthetic knowledge, without the doctor here, I'd want to ask him exactly what he meant. Um, my, the closest I can get to that is synthetic knowledge is about uh, two plus two equals four. And in AA, two plus two equals 19. What I get, you put a bunch of crazy people in a room together and the majority of them walk out happy at the end of the hour. That shouldn't be possible. Everyone was grumpy when they got there. You should end up with a room full of grumpy people at the end. And you would. You, you saw you know, that video of the, the parish council, which broke down on Zoom, where everyone got very, very cross. That's what normally happens when you put a bunch of angry people together. It also happens at Intergroup. I didn't say that. But in an ordinary AA meeting, you put a bunch of people who are angry and fretful and frightened and guilty and all those things together, and you give them something banal to do for an hour in each other's benefit, and every pretty much everyone feels better afterwards. It's 2 plus 2 equals 17. It's not 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's something happening here which comes from outside the system. And it, I think it links to step two. So step two is, a, a, is about a higher power, higher than what? Higher than my wit and wherewithal, higher than my intelligence and willpower. And I think really that's what he's talking about here. You apply intelligence and willpower to the problem of alcoholism and you end up ultimately with nothing. You put the alcoholics together in a room, you apply the same intelligence and willpower and miraculously, something happens to all of them. And there is no person who is doing it because all the other people are just as crazy. So something else is going on here, which is more than the nuts and bolts. I think that's the closest I can get to synthetic. And we're, um, we're almost at the hour. So I think I'm going to stop there, Alison. Thank you, Tim. Um, yeah, that seems an appropriate place to stop. And we'll, where we'll pick it up from next week. Um, I will post a, uh, a link to where the recordings of uh, these meetings will be, um, will be available when, uh, once they're posted. And um, yeah, we'll pick it up next week and it's the same meeting link um, for all who joined and please feel free to pass it on.
And uh, with that, if, if, with those of you, those of you who care to, please unmute. We'll close with the sovereignty prayer. God. God. Grant me the serenity, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.